You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hey guys, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to tell you a little bit about a project I'm working on that I'm super excited about. It's called the Radiant Recovery Collective. The Radiant Recovery Collective is a supportive online community of eating disorder warriors like you that lift you up and understand what you're going through. It is a place that you can turn to to feel connected, motivated, and inspired throughout your recovery journey. If this sounds like the place for you, I am sure you will love it. This is my monthly recovery membership program that provides expert Q&As with body positive influencers and mental health professionals, recovery workshops, group coaching led by me, as well as community wellness and friendship events. Each month, you'll also get access to new recipes, meditations, and other recovery tools. I promise you this is exactly what you need to keep you feeling connected with a network of amazing individuals and feeling inspired from day to day. The Radiant Recovery Collective is launching in a few short weeks, so please go to megnacabe.com to get on the wait list and be the first to know about the membership when the doors open. Remember, my friends, that you do not have to recover alone. The Radiant Recovery Collective is ready for you, and I can't wait to see you there. Welcome everyone to the next episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. I am so excited for all of you listening today because I have a food freedom coach named Jessie Jean on and she is an expert at talking all about how to stop binge eating and overeating. So today we're going to be talking about those topics as well as body positivity and how to accept your body as it's changing throughout recovery. So Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Mm, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. You're so welcome. I, I know that you have such an incredible presence on Instagram, especially even for me, your posts just really inspire me to just be more vulnerable and also just to accept my own body and accept my age like we were talking before i was hoping before we dive into the main part of the interview if you could tell me a little bit about your background and how you became a food freedom coach yeah absolutely so i struggled with my relationship with food for a decade it started when i was a freshman in high school my body started to change and i did not like that for whatever reason, I didn't really, before then, I didn't really even notice um, what what I looked like. It was, I existed in my own body and I was fine with it. I didn't have a concept of whether I was 
beautiful or not. I just was a kid and it was great. And I got into high school and I was in um, gymnastics and cheerleading and um, I was really addicted to perfectionism in everything from academics to, you know, student government to uh, athletics. And um, I started sleeping very, very little all the way through high school. Mm -hmm. I probably slept maybe four hours a night, five hours a night. I would study until the wee hours of the morning. I would get up, I would go work out with um, different athletic teams and in the morning. And I was just addicted to trying to be the best at everything. And when you're a growing human, obviously your body is changing, but also when you're not getting enough sleep, you, you need an energy source from something. So I was turning to food to give me energy and I noticed my body changing and didn't like that. And um, I started to control food. I started to try and resist eating. And as I would do that, this, you know, the cycle started to get more intense. I would restrict and then I would snap and I would binge and overeat. And um, I started again, my body kept, it was, I was growing, but it was changing. And I felt very ashamed of that. And I felt ashamed of what I was doing with food. And it just continued to get worse and worse as I went into college. And at my lowest point, I questioned whether life was even worth it. I was so mentally exhausted from the battle with food on a day-to-day basis and the battle with my body that it, it hit a low point where I was just, I was tired and I didn't know if I could live. I felt like this was a thorn in my side that I was going to have to live the rest of my life um, with. And I didn't know if I could do that. And I was, I mean, I was desperate to find healing. I was desperate to find a way out of this if there was one. So I thought, oh, I can't live the rest of my life like this. So I'm either not going to go on living or I have to figure it out. And so I started to do all this research and try and figure out what was going on. And that's when I mustered up the strength to put myself into, um, and the courage and every last penny I could put together in college to put myself into therapy. And I went to therapy for years and years. And then my therapist recommended I go to Overeaters Anonymous. And I went to, to that. And those are meetings just like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, some of those things, therapy was therapeutic in the sense I got to talk about and process some emotions, um, but it wasn't changing my behaviors with food or the way I felt about my body. I was still binging. I was still restricting. While I know Overeaters Anonymous works for some people, for me, it very much so felt like another prison of what I could and couldn't do. It was a lot of rules. The, the way they started the meetings was, you know, we would stand up and say who we were and say that basically our lives had become powerless and we were and we couldn't manage them and that we were an overeater. We just slapped these disempowering labels on ourselves. And mm-hmm. um, it was, it just was exhausting. And Um, I continued trying to find the answers and continued to struggle worse and worse. And um, it wasn't until I, well, I then went on to do uh, fitness competitions, bikini competitions, thinking if I dove into fitness, that would solve my problems. If I had the pressure of getting on stage in a bikini and others judging me, well, surely I would stick to a healthy diet. Mm -hmm. But that uh, sent my eating disorder in a whole new direction. And um, I became more neurotic around food than I had ever been in my life. I was, I felt less worthy in my body than I had ever felt. 
And um, so I did the, that for a few years. And then I started to understand the science of nutrition a little bit more. And I was going down these rabbit holes of just self-study and research of understanding uh, the brain and neuroscience. And I actually kind of stumbled upon this area of study as I was researching for a family member who had struggled with alcoholism. I wanted to understand addiction more. And as I was kind of doing this research, I started to understand the neuroscience of behavior behavior change. And a lot of these things that I was learning about addicts, I felt like I could relate to a lot. I was like, man, I know they're talking about alcohol or they're talking about this drug or that drug, but I feel very similar mentally as it relates to food. And so I kind of just, it was like this thread that I felt like I was pulling to just figure things out. So I just kept going down this rabbit hole and I started trying these different, um, these different mental techniques to train my brain. And some things started to work and started to shift. And it was definitely a long process. But the more I studied neuroscience, the more I understood how to work in sync with my brain, the more freedom I was finding. And eventually I dug myself out of this, what I call this mental hell hole. And I'm finally at a place where 10 years later, I have an easy, totally effortless relationship with food. I no longer am a slave to counting calories or math macros or living on a meal plan. I can eat intuitively without, you know, going crazy on the things in my pantry. I'm, I stop when I'm full. Like these were things I never was able to do. And I feel comfortable and confident in my own skin. I never thought I would get to this point. I thought it was kind of a fairy tale land, but that, that decade long battle really made me feel like it was my moral obligation to help. I felt like I had this moral obligation to help other people. So that's when I enrolled at the Institute for the Psychology of Eating to become certified to help others who struggle with binge eating, overeating, emotional eating. And yeah, that's kind of what landed me here is this this 10-year journey to find uh, freedom with food in my body. That is such an incredible story. And it's such a long journey too. And I love hearing, I mean, it's so challenging because you had to figure it all out on your, your own. And it's amazing now that you are stepping into a place where you're like, I've gone through this and I'm going to help other people do the same thing and heal their relationship with their body and heal their relationship with food. So that is just really beautiful. One question I wanted to ask you was, what does the, for those who may not know, what does the diet restrict binge cycle look like? And how did that kind of manifest for you? Yeah. So, well, it, it can look different for everybody. I always say people's struggles with food are as unique as their fingerprints. So if you're trying to compare yourself and your struggles with food to somebody else to see if you're worthy of support or if this program or that program is going to work for you, it's really unnecessary, unhelpful to be comparing yourself because it doesn't matter what your behaviors are manifesting into with food um, because it's really not about the food. It's what's going on behind the scenes mentally. And those who struggle in their relationship with food have this commonality, this underlying thread that ties us all together. And that similarity is we've programmed in these neural pathways in our brain that are creating, that are firing. These neurons are firing in our brain that are um, making us feel impulsive in our behaviors. Whatever those behaviors are manifesting as person to person is totally different, but um, it's, it's basically a, a brain 
brain wiring problem. Like we've trained the brain to function in a certain way. Um, and that's what we have to train the brain out of. But the diet binge cycle for me looked like, you know, white knuckling it, trying to stick to a diet, getting really motivated because I would, you know, I'd be following a period of of overeating, binge eating, and feeling really ashamed of what I was doing with food, feeling a ton of guilt, feeling disgusting. And that, that energy would propel me to, um, you know, kind of white knuckle the next diet, whatever that was for me. I went from, you know, meal plans to uh, calorie counting to macro tracking. I was like, whatever the next thing was, I was giving it a try. And I had so much hope at the beginning and I would stick to it until I started to mentally fatigue. And then I would snap and I would binge and I would overeat and I would feel guilt and shame and disappointment and fear of weight gain. And, but I would feel that temporary relief when I would binge and overeat. It was like, oh, I felt so good. And I, I call it the binge eating high or the overeating high. It was this euphoric feeling followed by a ton of guilt, shame, and overwhelm. And then and then I would go, it just kept going. It was a cyclical pattern. And yeah, I mean, that started at a very young age for me. Like I said, when I was in, in high school and I started to restrict food and then I couldn't because my body was screaming at me to eat and I would eventually snap and go crazy on food. What was the science that you studied that helped you start making a shift towards food freedom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I started, like I said, looking into the neuroscience of behavior change and understanding different mental techniques, things like mental collaboration, these metacognition techniques that we can utilize to start training the brain in a different way through lots and lots of repetition. The way we program the brain is through habituation. So we have to repeat certain behaviors over and over and over again. When you're a child and you're learning to tie your shoe, your fingers are getting twisted. It's really hard at first. Your parents are teaching you maybe like a bunny ear here, another bunny ear here. You tie it under and and you're having a really hard time tying shoes. Now you could probably be on the phone, eat eat a snack and tie your (laughs) shoes without even realizing you tied your shoes. So you tied your shoes enough times, you have programmed in a neural pathway in the brain that knows exactly how to tie your shoes. So when people get brain injuries, they have to relearn how to walk. They have to relearn how to do basic things because those neural pathways were damaged. It was in, it was, the brain is damaged in such a way where we have to retrain it. And so, um, over, we can train things into our brain that are very supportive. Like it, it would be exhausting if you woke up every day and had to relearn how to walk, how to tie your shoes, how to do these basic things. The brain's always working to make your life more easy, but it doesn't know if the things that you're doing are supportive or self-sabotaging. It just takes whatever you're doing and kind of programs it in and says, okay, we're going to make this more of an automatic process. And so if you are in these emotional cycles and these mental cycles with food where there's a lot of emotional pent up fear around food, and then there's this release of, you know, all these feel good hormones when you binge and you overeat, the brain says, okay, I like those feel good hormones. I like that release of, um, you know, dopamine and all the stuff that makes us feel really happy. And the way that I'm getting that is when my human goes and snaps and binges and overeats. And so the brain starts to learn these patterns and it just starts to just starts to program them in. And so that's why it can be very maddening to try and heal your struggles with food because it feels like you're stuck in this never ending cycle and you have to learn these certain, there's a a variety of techniques that you have to learn to uh, interrupt these brain pathways and reprogram them and kind of carve out new, I I like a neural pathways to like a trail in a forest. If you walk the same trail over and over, it's going to be carved out and, you know, shrubs are going to die and you're going to see the trail in 
the forest. But if you stop walking that trail and start to take off in the forest in a different direction, and you start walking a different path enough times, you're going to kill what's ever in that path, the shrubs, the weeds, the whatever, and you're going to carve out a new path. And over time, the forest is going to take over that other path and grow and it's going to regrow, you know, shrubs and whatever in that, in that place. So yeah, we have to learn these techniques. And that's what I was studying and researching and practicing on myself. And sure enough, it was the thing that allowed me to, to navigate out of this. I can completely agree with what you're saying. And it resonates with me too. When I was in my, the worst of my bulimia, I definitely would feel like I had no control around food and then it would feel really good when I finally allowed myself to eat enough. And then there would be that feeling. And then also when I was purging, there was a relief there too. And it was this feeling that I kind of solved my own problem and I was absolved and I can just move through, through the day. And so I can see, even though I didn't struggle directly with like overeating and binge eating, it was kind of like a binge for someone with my specific eating disorder. I definitely had neuropathways programmed in pretty tightly. That path was very nicely paved for a long time as the automatic behaviors, even not just overeating and binge eating, but anorexia and bulimia, there are so many automatic behaviors ingrained into our minds. Same with calorie counting. Calorie mm-hmm. counting is something I think people do automatically that they have feel like they have no control over and it's very hard to unlearn those behaviors. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's a lot of work to do. So tell me a little bit about how someone might be able to unlearn that binge eating cycle. Yeah, it's definitely a process. It's one that you have to um, feel safe pursuing. And I think a lot of times people are afraid to pursue recovery because of fear of weight gain, fear of spiraling out of control, of not having the control or the perceived control they feel like they have. Um, And so it's, I always say you have to take your time. And I think the best place to start is by just opening your mind and your heart to learn some information. Knowledge is not power, but it's the start. Applied, integrated, over time, consistently, that type of knowledge is powerful and life-changing, but learning something isn't going to change your life unless you apply it. But starting by learning is a great place. So if you can start to open your mind, open your heart and learn a little bit about the science of what's going on inside your brain. It's not going to change what you're doing. It might make you a little frustrated because now you know why you're doing what you're doing and you're still doing it, but it's the start. And so that's why I'm so passionate about, you know, sharing all the science on, you know, my podcast and through, you know, some, a little bit through Instagram as well. And with my clients is just sharing the science because once you start to understand how your brain works, then you can start to learn the tools to work in sync with your brain. So I always say just start by opening your mind, starting to learn, starting to understand um, the neuroscience of behavior change. I was recently interviewed on Dr. Caroline Leaf's podcast. She's a neuroscientist and we talked heavily about all of the science that goes into these types of struggles. And 
I think it's very enlightening for those who feel kind of crazy with food, like what the heck is wrong with me to understand, okay, there's nothing that's, you're not broken and it, you're not beyond repair. It's just, you've, you got to understand why you might intellectually know, okay, I don't want to do this with food, but here I am doing it. You got to understand why that's happening. And once you start to understand that, it's a, it's very much so a relief because it's like, okay, I, I'm not crazy because it can make us feel crazy when we know intellectually, like I'm, I have, I have no desire to engage in these behaviors that there's this outside force that feels like it's driving me to do these things. And so, yeah, I would say the first place to, uh, the first step is really to become educated. And then it's so, so important that we come out of isolation um, we will not heal our struggles alone in isolation. That is where they thrive. We've seen that in the research that if you, um, if you stay isolated, if you avoid telling people, if you avoid getting support, because these, these behaviors are so slick, cyclical, you need accountability. You need, you need energy poured into you for, through coaching or therapy or what have you so that we have enough fuel in our tank to keep going to to reprogram this pathway because it's very easy. The brain wants to go down the path of least resistance and the path of least resistance is the one that's been carved out in the brain. So we have to have energy to swim upstream for a while and we need that through accountability, coaching, and most importantly, human connection, healthy human connection. So we cannot heal our struggles alone. So if you're listening to this and you're struggling and you have not told anybody, I I know it's I know it feels very very scary, but vulnerability is uh, the strongest human connector. And if we can practice being vulnerable with people we trust, whether that's a trusted loved one or a trusted professional, what will happen is a release of pressure that needs to come out in order for us to start the journey to change. It's not going to happen alone in when you're kind of storing this in the dark places of your life and putting a smile on and pretending everything is okay. I definitely believe in the power of reaching out and making sure you have the support you need. Eating disorders are so isolating. Binge eating is terribly isolating. A lot of time people are eating alone. I remember feeling out of control and just having my mom come in and sit and eat with me was so powerful in itself, you know, in order for me to have the awareness to change my behavior in, in moments where I felt out of control around food. So openness to getting help, openness to information about science sounds like a really helpful tool for those struggling. What should the people do? Say you're in front, uh, I used to call my struggle, I would go into the cabinet and I would feel like I blacked out in front of the cabinet eating food, you know? What advice do you have for people when they're in that moment? You know, are there any tips or tools they can have in those moments that can stop them from engaging in that binge behavior? Mm, yeah. So when you're dealing with um, this intense impulsive impulsiveness, one of the things that we need to recognize is that you're not going to change your behaviors by one simple tool and just, okay, I'm going to utilize this thing and then I'm not going to engage in those behaviors. It's a process of a lot of repetition. It's a multidimensional process where you have to use a lot of tools and techniques throughout your day. First thing in the morning when your brain is most susceptible to influence in the evening when your brain is also really susceptible to influence right when you're falling asleep. Like there's so many different things that have to come into play to actually 
actually change our behaviors. And that's why we need to pursue a multidimensional holistic approach to recovery. But uh, techniques that can help us practice grounding and awareness. There's a few of them. And one of those techniques is uh, breath work can be really powerful in those moments when we're mentally checking out. We need to start practicing awareness and mindfulness. And I think uh, mindfulness is kind of this elitist term that nobody really breaks down and explains what it actually means. And so um, mindfulness is a series of eight questions that we can ask ourselves. And I tell clients that if you're having those moments where you're winding up in the middle of a binge, and you don't know how you got there, but we need to start practicing checking in with ourselves through mindfulness. And we can do this by setting an alarm on our phone to go off at the top of every hour during the hours that we're awake or five times a day, if that seems a little too much and annoying, but we want to start reconnecting with the body and going going to this introspective mode more often because if we're so disconnected from the body that we have these moments where we're doing things and we're not even mentally connected that's you know we need to we need to slow ourselves down and so if you start to practice or if you start to have your your phone go off at the top of every hour and you ask yourself eight questions those eight questions uh, the first three being what am I thinking right now? Or what was I thinking for the last hour? So what thoughts were running through my head? And then we ask ourselves, and a thought is just a sentence. What sentences were, were running through my head? It can be anything. What was going through your head? And then the second question is, what emotion do I feel? Or what, have, what emotions have I felt this past hour? And an emotion is just a one word physical sensation in the body, the vibration of the body. What did I feel or what have I been feeling? And then what am I or what was I doing the last hour? I'm standing in front of the cabinet or, or the pantry or, um, you know, right before this, I was sitting at my desk working. Okay. Now we ask ourselves those three questions. And the reason we do that is a lot of times when people are trying to change their behaviors, they're white knuckling it and they say, I want this certain outcome. I don't want to binge. And I have to change this behavior of standing in front of the pantry and mindlessly eating. Well, what precedes a behavior is an emotion. What precedes an emotion is a thought, and what precedes a thought is a belief. And if we don't ever pull pull these things up from their root and start identifying them, we're just kind of white knuckling it. So we ask ourselves those three questions, and then the the other five questions that we ask ourselves is our senses. We check in with our five senses. What do I see right now? Okay, I see my computer screen. I see the mountains out my office window. What do I hear? I hear the hum of traffic outside my office. I hear um, my computer lightly humming. Um, I hear myself talking right now. Okay, great. What do I smell? Take a deep breath in and what do you smell? And then what do I taste? Do I have any flavor, any sensation of taste in my mouth? And then just take your hands and touch something, whether it's your body, whether it's the cupboard in front of you, whether it's the wall, and just feel something. What do I feel? We ask ourselves those five questions and then the three questions that precede a, be, uh, a behavior are what are we thinking, what are we feeling, and then actually what are we doing? Um, and that's mindfulness right there, those eight questions. And if we start practicing that, it's very unlikely that we are going to wind up mindless in front of the pantry. We need to start bringing more awareness to our day. And so even in that moment, if we can say, oh, here I am, I'm about to mentally check out and go rummaging through this pantry. <sighs> okay, I'm going to ask myself these eight questions and not 
I'm going to ask myself these eight questions and then not eat because that's not going to work because it takes a lot of repetition for us to get to the point where we're not feeling impulsive with food. And if we tell ourselves that this tool is for the intended purpose of not eating and we're feeling an impulse to eat, we won't want to use the tool. So instead we say, I'm going to do this just to slow myself down and be mindful while I eat. So I'm not racing through food. Even if I'm not hungry, I'm going to start when I get done asking myself these questions, I'm going to eat and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to enjoy it. And we have to practice enjoying food instead of feeling guilt when we're eating. Um, but breath work is also a really, really powerful tool. So you start to mentally check out and whether it's, um, your, your kind of blowing out of what's called your window of presence or your window of tolerance. So if you start to get worked up and you get anxious and you're starting to become emotionally reactive and, and feeling really intensely impulsive, we can use triangle breathing to bring ourselves back into an optimal state of awareness and triangle breathing. If you just imagine drawing a triangle on a piece of paper on the upslope, it's inhale. On the downslope, exhale. And at the bottom of the triangle is a deep hold. We just hold. And it's inhale, exhale, hold. And you breathe like that for 30 repetitions, and then you return the breath to normal for 60 seconds, and you can repeat that for three rounds. That'll bring you back down into more of an optimal state of awareness. Or if you're not getting anxious and worked up and kind of emotionally reactive, but you're kind of going on what's called, you're kind of dropping below optimal awareness instead of blowing out of it, you're dropping below it. What that means is you're starting to become emotionally flat, apathetic, depressive, you're disassociating and you're kind of just becoming numb. When we're in that place, we can use circular breathing to bring us back up. So triangle breathing regulates our nervous system to bring us down. Circular breathing brings us up. And so if you notice you're starting to kind of cool off, become apathetic, depressive, you're, you're disassociating, you're checking out. Circular breathing is just inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale. <sighs> brings you back up. Um, I did not know that about breath work, that there are different techniques that can bring you down and bring you back up. Mm -hmm. Yep. So those are some things that we can do when we're kind of tapping out mentally. Okay. Cause I do find that there are so many people who get stuck in those moments. And I think those questions that you want people to run through in their own head in those moments can be extremely powerful. And I love that you made out the point that you're not doing this so that you don't eat. You're doing this so that you mindfully eat something that mm -hmm. you enjoy. Mm -hmm. That's so powerful. Yeah. So mm -hmm. how might a person practice the enjoyment of food when their brain is so stuck on feeling guilt and shame when they're eating? Mm -hmm. You have to, and this is why it's really important to understand the science of how to work in sync with the brain because we're, we're taught to be afraid of food. Food is bad, that we're more noble or worthy if we ignore our hunger cues. And so you have to understand the science of how to get to, to where you want to get. And we, if where you want to get is to a place that I call the mountaintop, mountaintop living, it's where you have an easy and effortless relationship with food and confidence in your own skin. If that's your goal, then you have to understand the science of how to get there. 
And what you may have been doing, white knuckling it, restricting, uh, dieting, you got to look at the history of what's happened. How many of you listening have gone on a diet, snapped, gained weight, gained maybe even more back than you lost, and then gone back on a diet? How many cycles of that have you gone through in your life? Okay, well, that's not just you. 97% of people who go on diets have this happen. And in the research, dieting is correlates with weight gain, weight gain in the long term. 97% of people who go on a diet gain weight over the long term, even if they lose weight in the short term. It messes up the body's metabolism. It's terrible on the body. Now, we're so we believe so much in diets because there's a 80 billion dollar diet industry that we're up against that's telling us all these different promises and they're disguising it under the guise of health and so we really have to start to understand the science so if you if you've ever had that experience where you've eaten gotten to the end of a meal you're biologically full but you're still craving more that's because your body's not registering satisfied and the brain is hardwired to move us in the direction of pleasure and away from pain. The brain is seeking satisfaction. But if you are feeling guilt and shame and overwhelm and fear of weight gain every time you eat, you are mentally restricting your brain's ability to feel safe and to extract satisfaction from eating. So you might be biologically, physically full and not satisfied. And so you're continuing to crave. And then you keep ravenously eating in a binge to try and get satisfied. And you're not getting satisfied because you're still mentally restricting because you're feeling the guilt and the shame. So when you understand the science of how this works, I think it gives us a little bit more courage to say, okay, Maybe it seems radical, but what I, what I know to be true is what I've done in the past hasn't worked. It's gotten me in this situation. So maybe I'm going to try a radically different approach, and that's enjoying food, like really, really just sitting down. And, and, and when I say enjoying it, if you're alone and you're eating, let's be dramatic about the way we enjoy it. And I mean, put a smile on your face, even if you have to force a fake smile. And you can even, if you're alone, make make enjoyment noises like, mm, this is so good. Ugh, and smile and sink into pleasure because the brain, when you smile and when you make those types of noises, the brain says, Oh, she must be satisfied. She must be feeling good. And so it starts to release feel good chemicals that help register satisfaction. And so even if you fake a smile, the brain releases feel good chemicals. You can literally trick the brain. And so, so we need to practice sat- We need to practice enjoying it, and and this is why it's so important to be in a support system to have a support system because it can be really scary and it can be like, man, I tried to enjoy it, but I got really really scared and felt like I shouldn't be eating what I was eating. And we need to be reminded constantly as to why it's so important that we practice releasing guilt because if you ever want to get through the pressure releasing phase of e- the eating disorder recovery journey, you have to start practicing enjoying food. And the more you can enjoy it without guilt, the faster you will get through what I call the messy in between where you feel like you're eating way more than maybe you want to. That doesn't last forever, that feeling and that desire and that sensation, but you do have to go through that. Mm, That is so valuable to just practice the enjoyment. And I love the concept of being dramatic with Mm -hmm. that act because Mm -hmm it does trick the brain 
And that really speaks to the mind-body connection. Like if you could put a smile on your face, your brain's going to feel a little bit happier while you're mm-hmm. doing that. And I also find the entire concept of just striving for satisfaction to be so real. Like I was just talking to a client about this right before this call. And that is you have to get to the point. I think it's a high level skill in recovery where you know yourself well enough to know exactly what you want to eat and to allow yourself enough food to feel satisfied in that moment. Totally. Absolutely. You you have, you've got to practice it. You've got to start. And as you, you know, as you begin this journey, having the support when you start to get afraid of, you know, weight gain or spiraling out of control or what have you, you need people to speak life and encouragement into you. Um, and eventually you'll, it's amazing. The body wants to be at this, this balanced place. Sometimes we're afraid our body's just never going to stop gaining weight. And that's just not the reality. The body wants to be balanced. It wants to thrive and it has an optimal weight range that your body thrives best at. And it wants to be in that. It doesn't want to be outside of that. When you were going through your issues, did you have that awareness that your body wanted to be at a different place? Because when I was going through my recovery, I had this wisdom. Like I was like, I know this is not sustainable. I know this is not where my body wants to be. And I, I found, I leaned on that a lot in my recovery, that inner knowing that my body wants to be somewhere else. Yeah, I definitely knew that. I knew that this idea I had to be a certain weight and size that took all of my effort and energy to try and get to and sustain. Obviously, I knew that my body wasn't happy there. I was irritable. I was uh, short-tempered. I was fatigued. I was mentally foggy. Obviously, I knew my body wasn't uh, loving what I was trying to force it into. So I knew that it wanted something else, but I was just so afraid that it would be something that you know I felt so insecure in. Mm-hmm. What helped you kind of relax into your natural body size? I would say I had to distance myself from um, seeing these images of these, you know, these perfect bodies because it was all I was seeing. And the reality is that is a, a very, 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 very small fraction of the population. And when we are so honed in on seeing one thing and, and when we're on social media and we're following just certain body types under the kind of umbrella of inspiration, the algorithm just feeds us more of the same thing. And it's just creating this silo effect that we're kind of in this tin, we're in this, this bubble of what we think is reality, but it's a very, very small portion of individuals. And I had to start distancing myself from the competition world, from what I was seeing on social media. I had to unfollow a lot of people that they weren't bad people. It was just causing me to slip so deep into comparison. I had to take social media breaks entirely. And I had to start opening up my eyes and looking around at what I saw on a day-to-day basis. And I had to ask myself some tough questions. Do I want to continue missing out on social events, on, you know, memories with my family and my friends, because I'm so anxious over the food scene? Do I want, is my life goal to be remembered for being fit? Or do I have something that I, there's more, more purpose and more, you know, I have more, more to offer this world. And, you know, do I want to continue to be obsessed with this? And I started to think about having children one day and I thought, man, if I, if I am this neurotic and obsessive around food, 
like I can't imagine if I pass this down to my future daughter, I would be mortified with myself. I don't know if I could live with myself. And I thought I have to figure out how to find balance, how to find an easier relationship with food. I cannot imagine passing along these insecurities and these obsessive behaviors. And so I started to just really think on that and think, there's got to be something more than standing on stage and selling my soul to get a little plastic trophy. But I really had to change my visual diet, what I was taking in through my eyeballs that was causing me to feel so not worthy or not good enough. Um, and I started diversifying my social media feed and challenging my own fat phobia, the fear of fat the, and, and following people who are in much larger bodies and just, just looking at things that were different because what happens is our brain normalizes. It takes the kind of average of everything we see and determines that that's normal, that's desirable. So if everything you see are these, you know, model-like bodies, your, your brain's going to think that's normal and that's, that's, that's the goal here. But if we see a diverse range of body sizes and people being happy in different body sizes and, and different lifestyles, we start diversifying what we're looking at. The brain says, okay, there's a variety of places we can be and be happy. And so, yeah, those are, I mean, those are some of the things that I had to do to start to feel safer in my own body. And I started to, started to ha uh, ask myself questions of instead of what should I eat or what should I be doing for working out? I started asking myself, uh, what do I feel like? What do I feel like doing? How does my body feel? And my body felt pretty shitty when I was, um, you know, looking my leanest physically. I, I had hair loss. I didn't have a period. I was, like I said, cranky and irritable. My hormones were messed up. I had zero sex drive. I wasn't sleeping well. I had really bad acne. Like it was, my body was fighting me and I knew it. And it was all because I wanted to be a certain size. And it was just like, no, this is not, this is not how I want to live the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. What is the biggest difference between Jesse then and Jesse now? Hmm. I think probably the joy, the groundedness, the peace, the confidence that I have now, the ease with life. I don't know how I managed to do anything else back when I was struggling with food because it was all my brain was thinking about. I mean, 90% of my mental energy was going to thinking about food and what I should or shouldn't eat. And if I needed to work out more to make up for what I ate and I just, I've regained mental real estate, precious mental energy that I didn't have before. I feel fulfilled. I feel, um, yeah, just passionate for life. I have a zest for life that I didn't have. I am married to an amazing man. We have a great marriage. And um, I wouldn't have had those things if I was still stuck in those, you know, those disordered behaviors. Yeah, absolutely. It's so amazing to see how much mental real estate gets taken over by our eating disorders. And then once you recover, your life just totally expands and there's so much more fulfillment and ease and self-compassion that kind of flows through your life. I always say recovery is like a fast pass to self-love. You kind of have to learn it quickly. You, you gotta, or I mean, not, it takes people a long time too, but it's kind of a quick and dirty way to like really get yourself to a place of extreme ease and self-love and self-forgiveness. Mm-hmm. 
that some people spend years of their life trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You, it's never too late though. I have women who I work with in the Food Freedom Online program who are 65, women who are 18. It's never too too uh, early, never too late. Fortunately, research has shown that our brains are always changing. We always have the capacity to reprogram them. So um, it's never too late, regardless of how long you've struggled. Uh, you don't have to continue struggling for years. And, and recovery doesn't have to even be years. When you have the right tools, it doesn't have to take that long at all. It took me probably a, a year to like really reprogram with like understanding the techniques and the tools to completely change my life. And I'd go back and I'd do that year over and over and over again. It was worth every ounce of energy and effort to get to where I'm at now. That's great to hear that because when I hear a 10-year journey, I wasn't sure when that recovery moment started Mm -hmm. for you. So you were struggling for 10 full years. And then what made you decide to actively work towards your recovery? Was it like, this is the year I'm going to change. Did you have one of those? No, uh, no it was a, uh, for me, I, I say my recovery was a, like a, a, a 10 year journey because I was, I was pulling threads the whole time. Mm-hmm. But if I were to look the women that I work with, I mean, we're conquering things in four, six, eight months, like just life changing things. But if I were to condense like the things that actually impacted and created forward momentum in my journey, it would have been about a year, year and a half. So yeah, for me, I mean, it was, it was spread out over time, but if we were to condense what really moved me forward, it was, yeah, it was probably a year, year and a half worth of work. Okay. That inspires probably some hope for a lot of people who think this journey has to take so long. It doesn't have to take all these decades of your life. And I think that's really helpful to just reinforce Yeah. After all of this, what is the number one lesson you took away from it? You know, Um, I would say the biggest lesson that I took away to be resilient, Mm -hmm. to, uh, yeah, to never give up, to not quit. Uh, Your life is worth more. You don't know what you don't know. And just because you feel like it's impossible doesn't mean it's impossible. You just don't know the keys yet. And you just have to know the path to get there. And I felt hopeless because I didn't know. But now, whenever I don't know the answer to something, instead of asking myself, how do I figure it out? I don't get it. Is it even possible? How do I do this? Instead of asking, how do I do this? I ask, who knows how? Because there's experts. that We don't have to reinvent the wheel on hardly anything. There are people who have gone before us. And so I just ask myself when I'm stuck on anything anymore, it's not how do I figure this out? It's who knows how. And I'm going to go and hire that person or get that person's help or read their book or listen to their podcast or whatever it is. That is really valuable to think about. Like who knows how? That's a powerful shift to have instead of how do I do this? How do I muscle through it myself? Who knows how? How can I make this easier for myself? Mm-hmm. I don't have to use, spend so much time trying to forge the path when somebody's forged it before. I really appreciate just having you on the show today. And before I let you go, I just wanted to, first of all, thank you so much mm-hmm. and ask you, how can everyone find you? Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I, I love to hang out on Instagram. 
um, at Jesse J E S S I Jean J E A N N N, and then I have my podcast, the Dear Body Podcast. It's on all podcast platforms. Um, and then at risewithmeco.com, www.risewithmeco.com. That's all my information there and our program. So yeah, those are the places that I hang out. Well, Jesse, it was a joy to have you. You brought so much information. You're definitely a smart cookie for sure. I think people will take away so much from this. So thank mm-hmm. you so much. Thank you for having me.